Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Rachel Gabriel, the editor and contributing author to the new book, How Policy Shapes Literacy Instruction. Rachel Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of literacy education at the University of Connecticut. Um, I was a middle school reading teacher and then a bunch of other things in between. Um, And I ended up studying kind of the intersection of literacy, teaching and learning and policy. Um, And any policy that has something to do with literacy, teaching and learning is the one that I'm thinking about at any given time. Uh, When I first entered the field, that policy uh, family was the teacher evaluation policies. Um, And as that has shifted into the background for most of us, Um, I turned to the state um, dyslexia policies that kind of swept the country pretty quickly. And now I'm thinking a lot about the science of reading policies and the right to read policies that are going around, sometimes related to third grade uh, retention, sometimes related to other things, and sometimes on their own. So so that's me. I'm somewhere in between the policy and reading world. Fantastic. Thank you for that introduction. So in your book, it explores how literacy policies are framed and your contributors write about six areas that relate to literacy instruction, retention, remediation, early literacy instruction, differential treatment of students with reading disabilities, and language policy and literacy instruction for English learners. So how did you come to choose those six topics for your book? Uh, Partly because they're the six that uh, you can trace back through policy over 50 years or more. Um, one of the surprises in the book, or in preparing the book, uh, was that I, I asked each of the authors to begin with ESEA or around that time, be- beginning with laws around the 1960s. <clears throat> and one by one, they all called me back and said, we have to go back further. And I thought, like, can you go back further? That's great. Sounds good. But um, it was more uh, uh, the answer was like, you can absolutely go back further. The question is, how far do you want to go? Um, and so we had lots of conversations about where to bound the current story. But many of the core issues um, that we're thinking about today and that people are um, popping onto legislative agendas uh, almost every year, whether they really make it all the way through to law or not, um, are perennial issues. They're not they're not new. They sometimes go dormant for a while and come back at certain um at certain points, like for example, I think there's almost always something related to a back to basics movement after after a big demographic change. Um, so we can sort of predict when some of these things are going to come uh, back into the spotlight, but none of them are 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 about our time, and none of them are about current circumstances as much as they are sort of uh, permanent features of how we answer a couple of fundamental questions about schooling, which is like. What do we do with individual differences? And um, what's the purpose of school? Uh, and um, 
whose education is valued. Like we could have just had three sections. We didn't need all those chapters. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there, there may be others, but those were the six, um, like I'm open to an argument about not, not to argue, but I'm open to possibilities of others that you could trace back that far. But those are the six that I think have the biggest influence on instruction, uh, who gets what kind, what it, what it consists of, how we measure it. Um, so that was, that was the set that we went with. If you were editing the book today, would you add or change any topics based on how literacy policy has continued to develop since publication? No, not at all. I think everything right now is fully predictable based on the patterns that we found um, across the different chapters. I think we are about to be able to do some of the work that um, Kate Frankel did in, in terms of understanding how kids with different labels end up with a really different opportunity to develop literacy. I think we're going to see that not so much with like um, the disability label or not, more with like what kind of school do you qualify for? Um, and that is related to sort of uh, private or semi-private, but also um, special schools popping up uh, in lots of places for uh, language-based learning disabilities in general or dyslexia specifically. Um, and then also thinking about what that does in terms of um, draining resources from uh, public schools uh, that don't have a particular specialty. So I think we're going to be able to do some of the comparative studies that look at what is instruction in the same building with theoretically the same policy environment? What does instruction look like in different types of classrooms? Um, what, is it, what does it look like for students that live in the same zip code but may attend very different schools? Uh, and then kind of also thinking about what's the, um, what are the expectations and what does the language sound like when, um, when we assume a certain way of developing literacy based on early kindergarten screening for literacy difficulty. So why this book now? Is literacy instruction unique in how much it is shaped by policy? And if so, why? Um, it's, it is unique in how much it's shaped, how often it's shaped by policy. <laughs> um, for example, there, there are policies that relate to mathematics education, but they are not as prescriptive. Um, there are policies that largely that fund STEM education. Um, most of the time, most of the time when that was just agreement, um, most of the time when we see a policy that has something to do with STEM, it's about uh, having more of it or um, training teachers in it. It's it's about um, it's a it's a more of this, more of this. Literacy policy tends to be um, this is what should happen, and uh, moving now much more towards this is what must happen, and even this is what is not allowed to happen. So having like bookends on what practices can be and can't be. Um, you don't see that level of specificity in public discourse about any other area. Like there's been so many um, newspaper articles that are focused on literally what the teacher says to the student at the point of difficulty. And we don't know what that looks like in any other content area at any grade level, but it is uh, definitely part of the conversation um, in social media and media representations of literacy instruction. And then similarly in the policies, they're really specific about exactly what assessments, exactly what kind of instruction, exactly what kind of training. And there just isn't that specificity about any other area. So 
It's an important question, I think, because there is such a thing as the math wars, like in quotation marks. There are um, ideological debates and there is uh, what my colleague Suzanne Wilson calls contested territory in every area. Um, if you if you talk with educators that find their home in one area or other, they'll tell you all about it. And yet, um, reading is the one that has the most, that captures the public imagination the best and, and also um, really hits on our, our existential fears the most. And so we've gotten ultra specific about it. The only other that I can think of that has um, some pedagogical implications that are actually part of public discourse rather than just kind of like vague, broad, is um, bilingual education. Um, and I think in some states that's much more part of the public consciousness than others. Um, but reading is part of the conversation everywhere you go. So so it's, it is the one. Thanks. So throughout the book, your contributors used frame analysis. So can you tell our listeners what that is and why it was important to take that approach to studying literacy policy? Yeah, totally. So frame analysis is a way of thinking about changes in social movements and how um, people understand and advocate for change in the social world. It draws on the idea that um, our understanding of things and our interactions with each other are discursively constructed, meaning like the language we use shapes how we understand what's wrong and what could be right and why it's a problem. Um, and so frame analysis um, helps us do the work of considering what are people constructing or saying uh, is a problem here to be solved by policy? Because there are tons of things that are problems in the social world that policy isn't going to touch, and no one, no one's trying to make a law about it. Um, there are there 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 are many things that we wish would be different, but we're not trying to um, legislate it. So, what are, what what language are we using? What evidence are we using? What ideas are making this thing seem like a problem that could be solved by policy? And then what are we proposing as a solution? Because in many cases, people learn about a policy once a solution's already been proposed, and we assume that's the only solution that's possible. So like um, reading scores are too low, so we are going to uh, require a certain reading program. And if you haven't thought much about that issue up until this point, hearing the problem and solution together makes it seem like that's an obvious and unitary and only solution. Um, frame analysis also reminds us to think about the motivation. So like, why is this a problem? Um, and reading has been framed really variably over time. Sometimes reading instruction is the solution to the problem of low reading rates. Sometimes reading instruction is the problem to be solved by policy. Um, and the motivations change. Sometimes the motivation to um, have a policy related to reading instruction is um, to increase equity or to make a more skilled workforce or to um, help with international competitiveness or to support the economy. And in in Connecticut, I remember one of the more recent ones, the the um, the little preface at the beginning of our preamble at the beginning of one of the laws had to do with economic competitiveness and then also keeping people out of prison. And the way that we frame this as a problem and, and explain why it's a problem or who it's really a problem for points to particular solutions and silences others. Um, so one of the things in reading is like, is reading difficulty an individual problem? Is it you? Is it the kid? Is it a societal problem? 
Is it like a social group that is more or less likely to grow or that is more or less advantaged or disadvantaged by the social reality? Uh, or is it an institutional problem that schools don't do something that they need to be doing? And I think probably the reason that it vacillates between the three is that it's all of them. Um, but policy is a blunt instrument for change. And so policies really only address one or the other and therefore kind of shape and distract our attention towards sort of one understanding of what's going on and not any of the others. Thank you for that. In the introduction, you suggest that as the field of literacy education expands our lens on what counts as literacy and how it develops and what factors matter for its development, that policy should expand in line with the field moving forward. Is that happening? Do you see any signs in that direction? And what would it look like if policy was aligned to the expanding research base in literacy? There are um, baby steps, which I think is to be expected. Policy follows incremental change models, not like rapid ones. And I think that's all to the good. Like, I don't, I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, one of the baby steps that I, that I saw that may actually be a leap, um, <laughs> that baby step, because I only see one example of it at the moment, is I think it's Utah's um, right to read or science of reading law, or one that was proposed recently, um, includes criteria um, for newly adopted materials and for instruction that it has to be culturally responsive and sustaining alongside of requirements that it has to be um, based on the science of reading and following the National Reading Panel. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, here, but it has a lot of the same language of other states that are requiring um, attention to the five pillars of reading instruction. But in addition, not only the five pillars of reading instruction, but also um, considering the uh, cultural relevance of the materials and approaches that are adopted in order to address those skill areas. I think that's sort of where that that is pointing toward where I think we could be going in terms of policy, where um, we need to be thinking not only about cognitively responsive instruction, but also um, socially and culturally and linguistically responsive instruction. So how we do the teaching really, really matters. What we're teaching about really, really matters. Um, and how we measure it and what we consider success also really matters. And as I was saying in the question just before, policy tends to do one of those things and not many of them at once. And so I appreciate that Utah kind of pulls in two lenses, a cognitive lens and a cultural lens at once. And if we could, if we could make that a pattern and a habit, um, we would stand a chance of bringing in not just two, but three in, in the future. Um, instead of assuming or presuming or leaving it to the uh, individual municipalities to make that real. I think there probably are um, districts that have that commitment and maybe even have made that explicit in their own um, policies and, and conversations. And that may be another way to push the needle forward is that if local municipalities are um, making their commitment to considering all aspects of learning and not just uh, not just one at a time. Because everything we're, like everything I read about a different way to think about instruction points towards integration being the single most important thing. And so we can't stop. you know, Zaretta Hammond has a lot has 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 shared a lot about like how you wouldn't stop the cognitive rigor in order to be culturally responsive. It literally isn't if you let the rigor go. And so um, these things have to um, integrate together. 
uh, and then linguistic responsiveness too, because we've got um, students that are coming with really different language backgrounds, um, language histories, and that changes how they interact with instruction. And it doesn't actually have to be a problem as often as an asset, but it's a problem because our systems are set up to assume something about every learner. And when it's not true, that creates a problem. Um, even when the student actually came with like extra things that are cool, uh, just because they don't fit the mold, it's, our, it's already a problem. That's exciting. I haven't heard about that Utah policy. So that's a neat um, baby step forward, as you say. So policy analysis often highlights costs or narrow measures of effectiveness. So several of the contributors to your book take a more expansive approach to evaluating policy. So for example, both Frankel and Delavecchia emphasize the importance of student perspectives on, in their case, remediation and retention. What do you think is often missing in education policy evaluation studies and why? And how do you feel that this volume takes a different approach? I think there's two uh, layers that would be great to um, always include in evaluation policies. One of them is sort of an organizational or institutional view of how the policy met the organization. Um, I'm thinking a lot with my colleague Sarah Wolfen about how um, some school settings and so some district settings and school settings are um, primed for change and are ready for it and are flexible and um, uh, and um, responsive to calls for change um, because they have the infrastructure to do it. Um, and infrastructure meaning their leadership is coherent and aligned and stable and they have the materials they need to do a good job of what they're doing. Um, and they have the professional support to do a good job of what they're doing so they can pick their heads up from the from the weeds and say, what else could we be doing or what new would be good too. Uh, but there are, of course, by the same token, districts and schools where they are in the middle of a transition already and therefore not in a great position to change or change a lot um, or where they have had so many transitions uh, thrown at them over time that they are really mired in the weeds and can't get uh, can't get free to to try this new change and give it give it a real shot. So one layer is just sort of institutionally, um, how did this change hit this place? Was it a little change for them? Was it a big change for them? That's something I think about a lot as I work with um, multiple districts in the state that I live in and see how differently they're responding to the same policy, but also that some of them are like, oh yeah, we do that. And some of them are needing to do a 180 degree shift and that is a much different change process um, than the district that next door or, or a district that has to do some things, yes, but um, but nothing, nothing dramatic, nothing that um, turns things on its head. So that's one layer of it. And then the other layer of it is the human layer of it. So institutions and humans, <laughs> uh, the human layer of it is that people have to do these things and there's always a cost to every change and is the cost worth it? Um, one of the, um, I, I recently listened to a, a podcast on called Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Nope, just kidding. I think it was actually called uh, Everything Happens. Um, and on Everything Happens, the uh, Kate Bowler was interviewing a rabbi who was talking about tragedies that happen in people's lives and how there often is a silver lining, but was it worth it? And his answer is almost always no. Like, yes, something good might have come out of this. You can maybe find a change, a, a, a metric, a single data point that says um, something came up here. 
Uh, but if you look in the broader scheme of things, what was lost in order to produce that data point? Um, and so I think that question of was it worth it um, is really an important question. I've seen a lot of intervention studies that make a very small change in one skill area of reading, and yet they have made uh, an enormous disruption in the lives of students, in their identities, in their sense of self, in the school, in the ability of that school to also provide other kinds of instruction or enrichment or to pay attention to any other kind of assessment data. So um, we have to we have to pay attention to outcomes because they matter. And um, we have to value them differently. We have to think about like, was it worth it? Was all of that worth it for the small change that we see? And are we? Th is it? Um, are there significant costs that actually have to be balanced if we were going to do this again? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, some of your contributors in the volume um, point out that proposed policies can be a distraction from the conversations we should actually be having. So, Della Vecchia, for instance, argued that retention is a distraction from a conversation about actually supporting literacy development. So, I'm wondering your sense across the whole volume, across the team of contributors, what are the conversations that your team wishes we were having at a policy level? Um, one of them, I think, is about uh, students' uh, self-efficacy and identity development. Um, I think that shows up in terms of thinking about English learners and in terms of thinking about adolescents in particular and the way that remediation hits adolescents in their development um, and the way that enrichment or just embedded support would uh, would be much more worth it for them, uh, to borrow my own phrase from a minute ago, or the rabbi's phrase, I guess. Um, another is the idea of discipline-specific literacies. Alfred Tatum has a new new this year book out about um, about considering disciplinary literacy in the elementary grades. And disciplinary literacy is something that I've thought and worked on, thought about and worked on for a really long time, mostly in the secondary grades, um, because I think there's really a lot of room for people to find the literacies that they um, enjoy and can use as their bridge to development and can um, be their kind of uh, reason for showing up at high school, and we can't we can't ever guarantee that um, somebody's high school schedule is going to be packed full of teachers that they, you know, beautifully connect with, whose teaching style matches their learning style, who's um, are are teaching them things that they are just so excited to learn. And I don't think that we're going for like everything is perfect land. But if that's not what we're doing, one of the things we have to consider is what are the protective factors that allow people to persist in the face of difficulty, to grow in unhospitable um, circumstances, uh, and to uh, learn things independently. And one of the answers to that question is being able to develop different, uh, develop literacy differently um, across their day. So I think. Each year, I had maybe one course that I woke up to go to in my in my day as a high school student. And if that is a course where I can be developing literacy in, um, in whatever way, then it'll support me and sort of insulate me from the difficulties and from the disappointment and from the awkwardness of going to classes that are just not a good fit for me, that don't meet me at all where I need to be as a learner. Uh, because I do have this spot where I'm developing literacy and confidence and interest in academics and a sense of belonging in the school. So I think um, 
you know, I've heard it hasn't been a huge movement, but there is some talk about, you know, what does the science of reading look like after third grade? And, and you know, at what point do we stop worrying about fundamental, fundamental or foundational skills? Um, and I'm always nervous about that conversation only because it's very clear to me that the literacies that are developed in outside of an ELA or a mediation context are uh, potentially life-saving and we will be totally distracted from them if the answer is framed as phonics will solve the literacy problem, let's not have electives. And I know that seems extreme, except it's not. So if you don't score high enough to on, on whatever reading screener as a ninth grader, you are often assigned to a remedial class, which takes away a study hall or an elective. So it it um, mediates your ability to do well in other classes, which will then screw up your electives, or it takes away the elective. In middle school, it's 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 more likely to be an elective or a foreign language. And so if we think about like who is getting what kind of an, of a um, of an education and um, who's getting what kind of preparation and whose linguistic prowess do we value? Um, some of those things are built in and they may not be intentional, they're structural, um, but that doesn't matter, they're happening. So I think the two, the site, the, um, the identity piece and the, um, the need to think about content areas. With little kids, the content area thing, especially thinking about like related arts, I think is a protective factor in terms of cognitive development. Um, if we take if we take uh, gym and recess and music and art and minimize their time in the schedule, we are taking away every protection that kids might have from within the school day um, to to grow and um, make new neural networks and to remember things. Um, it's almost like we're saying we're going to cut snack, not snack time, just snack. Like it literally is sort of nutrients in that way. Um, for a growing and developing brain to be able to move and um, interact with rhythm and play with pitch and um, rhyme and match their body to someone else's body. Like this is fundamental to our foundational skills, like uh, phonemic awareness and segmenting and blending and sequencing things, but also to foundational skills in every other area, including, you know, social interaction. And so um, one kind of dystopian future would be that the, um, limiting of related arts and exercise uh, creates more of a need for uh, remediation in math and reading and in social emotional learning, um, which is something that can be bought and sold. Uh, whereas really what you're buying and selling when you uh, invest in a related arts program and in recess and gym, I guess gym has some equipment, but you're mostly investing in educators, not not necessarily um, commercial programs or assessments. Thank you for that. So I'm going to read you a quote from your conclusion and ask for an example and some explanation of it. So in the conclusion, you note, and here's the quote, what seems like grassroots movements often have roots in and resources drawn from national organizations funded by a handful of powerful elites and reinforced by a loosely coupled network of philanthropists and ed tech companies whose stake in public education is increasingly apparent. So can you explain the background of that claim? And if you have an example that you would like to share, that would be great. So part of the background for the claim is the pattern um, there's been a lot of reporting about this recently, specifically around book banning, 
how book banning is often, there's what we would normally call grassroots advocacy because it happens at a local level, um, that where people, not necessarily parents or even community members, are showing up at local school board meetings um, to advocate for certain books to be banned or for certain librarians to be censored or um, for certain kinds of uh, material to not be allowed in schools, regardless of like um, specific titles. And those groups are showing up at a, a local level, or those individuals are showing up at a local level, but they are organized at a national level and they're funded at a national level um, by uh, political action committees and uh, other groups. The other um, way that I see this happening is with um, model legislation that's put out by um, Eric or, did I say Eric? Alec, sorry, <laughs> the other man's name that ends with, um, and yeah, that's put out by Alec or that's put out by Excel and Ed, which is Jeb Bush's group, um, getting taken up at the local level and advocated and passed state by state. Um, so it looks like it's um, it's just a citizen coming down and saying, here are some uh, things that I think would be really important policy points. But that's not coming out of the grassroots of the local community that's coming down from a national organization that is communicating with individuals or individuals who are connecting with a national organization and um, and coming forward with um, talking points and uh, policy points already kind of organized and written out. And we can see the effect of that because there's tremendous similarity across um, state laws. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having a national agenda, but it's a, not a transparent national agenda. And one of the reasons I think it's happening is because we don't have a lot of, we don't have much federal leadership at all in the area of education at the moment and haven't um, for 15 or so years. And so there's a vacuum and it's being filled by national leadership, but only from particular groups. As far as I know, there is not, there is not the organizational or financial equivalent of Excel and Ed and um, Alec um, and other smaller but not less uh, powerful organizations. They mostly are coming from the conservative right. And that means we don't have uh, an equal kind of balanced conversation about what's happening. Whereas I would hope that if there was a federal policy that it would be debated and it would be um, hashed out between people with different perspectives. Right now there's sort of a um, a single perspective that's um, coming up from local and down from state, and it is pulling uh, pulling a lot of po state policy and therefore local policy um, pretty far right of center. I think also if you trace those groups back, I mean, um, Excel and Ed, if you look at the board, um, it's pretty. You can kind of see what the um, what the makeup is. Uh, but my understanding just from reading news articles about book banning and things like that is that many of the smaller groups um, can be, their funding can be traced back to one or two uh, individual philanthropists or foundations, um, even if they pop up in lots of different states. The, the funny thing about that image of sort of a couple of people holding the purse strings for lots and lots of other folks doing social movement work is um, it's not dissimilar from what's happened with most publishing companies, not all, but most being owned by private equity firms and really like the same one. 
So for example, I live in a state where a lot of folks are switching from a Heinemann product to a uh, Houghton or Houghton, depending on who you've talked to, Mifflin Harcourt product, but they're owned by the same company. So it's not, there's there's no loss there in terms of who's getting those dollars from um, local municipalities. It's not a change at all in terms of who benefits, um, but the price gets to go up and um, there are, are new contracts uh, out of out of the normal sequence of how often you would normally do a new contract because we've been convinced as a country that reading instruction is not going right and we've got to fix it by replacing curriculum. And so we just have given a bonus to the parent company of um, of both publishers, basically. So building on this question, what role do you imagine for literacy researchers in advocacy related to policy? So one of the authors argued that we need more literacy researchers to be active in policy. And in conclusion, or in the conclusion, you call on the literacy researchers to be active in public scholarship, to inform policy, to try to break out of the cycle of research being primarily reactive to policy. So how can we do that? And what would it look like? Again, I think that's a multi-pronged kind of approach. One is to find, um, we are all almost always on the back foot in, ter in terms of demonstrating alternatives to the status quo. Um, and yet we have theoretical alternatives and historical alternatives that people know very well within a research community, but they haven't been demonstrated publicly. And so uh, finding pockets of, and even if it's on a small scale, of um, <clears throat> alternatives to the solution that's being framed at the moment and demonstrating what it looks like and what it could mean, I think goes a long way, especially for just the general public imagination that like, if you listen to one podcast and that's the only one you listen to, then you don't even like, why would you imagine that there are other perspectives to consider? Or why would you imagine that there's any other way to solve this problem than the one that is um, handed to you? If we don't have any examples to point to, we are on the back foot again. And in some cases, it's uh, it, there has been an example, um, but, uh, but it's historic. And in other cases, um, it's something that we talk about in research circles, but haven't necessarily stood up, like, you know, put up on stage and, and done um, and collected data and crunched it and shared those those findings about. So one is to um, actualize some of the horizon and make sure that people have an idea of what's possible. Um, I think in a lot of areas, not just education, we don't, we are in a space of uh, lacking imagination about what's possible. I think the um, uh, Trisha Hersey, the, the NAP minister or the NAP bishop would say that uh, that's because people don't rest enough to dream. Um, however, we really need to have more imagination about the possibilities because we're just repeating policies from before um, that we weren't happy with then. So that's one piece. The other piece is a lot of the decision-making that makes the most day-to-day difference for teachers and students still happens at a local level, which means we're not talking about like, can you get, you know, scream into the void of social media and get the attention of the president or a senator or a governor or even really a town council person. It's like, can you and your neighbor have a chat about this? Because your neighbor is probably the cousin of, no, <laughs> the uh, someone in your immediate uh, circle is likely to be connected to or directly or indirectly connected to um, someone who works in a central office 
or someone who is uh, part of a decision-making body like a school board. Um, and there's no law that says that education researchers can't be school board members. And I don't know everybody, but I, I only have one uh, friend who is a education researcher and a school board member. And why isn't that more common? Um, I know the point of a school board is to sort of be representative of all kinds of citizens. And so we are a kind of citizen uh, whose voice isn't particularly represented because the way that we direct our voice is very rarely towards the policymaking process. The few times that I have been part of legislative hearings, uh, part like actively participated in legislative hearings or written to um, folks at the local level or in my state, um, it's usually the first time they've heard the piece of perspective that I'm bringing. And that's my fault and our fault. That's not their fault. That's because we um, exist in a community where we have a lot of shared knowledge and a lot of shared awareness. And it's hard for me to imagine that, like, really, you've never heard of the Matthew effect, but like, why would anybody outside of reading have heard of the Matthew? I mean, you know, that we perhaps assume uh, too much. Um, there's a, um, like a digest of education research put together by Kim Marshall, which I think is is circulated really a lot up here in the Northeast, but I've heard a handful of folks reading it from other places in the country too. And um, when I have talked with the chair of the um, education committee at the state level here, and we've asked like, so how do you get your information? The Marshall Memo comes up as like top three a lot. Marshall Memo and Ed Week. And that's actually a really reasonable strategy for someone who has to stay up on a whole bunch of things um, all the time. And Kim Marshall does like a really important service by doing that. Um, and it makes me think that if that's it, then there's a lot that we have to share that isn't going to be there. And a lot of it is historic. Um, if it's cool that it just happened and it made headlines, folks are aware of it. But if it's something that we actually have seen over and over again, um, that's part of our job is to connect with folks and make sure that they've heard it. So the local connections, um, I think are important and, um, not assuming that people should have known this, but like being the person that ha that is lucky enough to get to introduce the possibility, um, is, is I think like an important embedded responsibility of being somebody who's taken a bunch of years to read a lot of research. Um, Emily Hanford in the couple of times that I've heard her um, speak in person has talked a lot about reading over 300 articles. And I think about how many articles researchers read in a month, um, or include in a single paper. Um, and you know, I just, I just saw a copy of Jen Saravalo's reading strategies book, and it has over a thousand citations in one single book. And I, the volume there, um, means something about who should be in communication um, at least with the people that you know. Absolutely. So before I ask the final question, is there anything else that you would like to say about your book or the topic of how policy shapes literacy instruction? Uh, no, I really appreciated the questions that you asked. I think you're, you're highlighting some of the, the most important things that are in there um, and have given me a chance to talk about some of my favorite things. So I appreciate that. Um, I think the chapter that... Um, I debated about putting it, I think it's sixth or so, debated about putting it first or toward the end is the chapter about uh, bilingual learners or or, or English learners. Um, and part of the reason that it could be sort of way up front or it could be just part of the mix is that it touches on so many other issues at the same time. Um, 
And I have, I think about this as sort of about English learners as almost like the extreme case formulation for a lot of what is happening or will be happening for everybody else. So almost like the canary in the mine for what we can expect um, to happen for all learners because it sort of shows us what people really think about folks that don't fit the mold, um, whether they are, uh, whether we're working on integration or whether we're working on separation, whether we're working on segregation or desegregation. Um, I think that's an easy place to look. Um, you know, when people say you're only as good as your weakest link, I think about in terms of policy, um, is this a safe and welcoming and conducive to growth policy environment? The first two places I look are how do you um, talk about English language learners in your um, in your policy documents? And, uh, and the second is um, who's in your special education programs and how are the teachers uh, interacting with them? So, you know, when you visit a school, the two places you should park yourself are the resource room and the EL room and then walk the hallways <laughs> and then some other places. So um, I was really grateful to get those authors uh, to come into the fold or come into the book um, with that topic. And uh, it's the one that I think I don't talk about enough in part because it is that sort of warning in the distance in my mind. Um, but uh, it's important to pay attention to the warnings. Sure. So our final question, what are you working on now? So I just finished um, working on a book focused on disciplinary literacy instruction for secondary folks. Um, it's something that has been on my mind and in my coursework and in my research for a long time. Um, but as policy happens in real time, uh, I kept getting pulled away. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to have that now like eight year project um, wrapped up and almost, uh, almost at the stage where it can go out into the world. I'm also really thinking about how to work with teachers to develop um, resources that support or just ways of thinking about framing, honestly, ways of thinking about how to navigate um, changing policy environments um, in terms of how do I navigate new materials and still teach with integrity. And also in terms of like, how do I understand these ideas where they even come from? And is there a way to not, um, is there a way to quell the chaos that surrounds my job so I can do it? Um, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question, but I think that understanding some of the the background and the history of where these ideas come from and like what they're really what they're really really about um, can help people sort what they do and don't want to respond to and what they um, what they see as uh, really changing what they do or what they can interpret as um, you know in line with it but with a different understanding. And the last piece of that I think is just understanding how um, the nastiness around reading um, at the moment is, again, not quite a canary in the mind, but really a product of um, the way that this particular version of the reading war has existed in 2023 with um, probably, you know, the first time I think I say this in the book about how many weeks the book um, Why Johnny Can't Read was on the New York Times bestseller list when it first came out in the 1950s. Um, that probably is the equivalent of going viral. And um, now going viral just means reaching a whole lot more people and energizing or enervating a whole lot more um, activity and energy around this thing. <clears throat> and so I don't know that it's bigger or worse. It just feels that way because it's, um, it's you know, the 24-hour news cycle and the, um, the way social media works. 
And yet school hasn't changed significantly. We still show up five days a week. We still get the kids that are that come into the classroom and have to teach whoever walks in the door. We still have this sort of roughly 180-day thing. And whether we're showing up online or showing up in classrooms, the structure of what we're up to hasn't changed significantly, um, even as the volume has gotten turned way up on some of the things that swirl around us. So I've been thinking a lot about what folks need right now in order to feel like they can teach with integrity and grow as intellectuals and um, reach out to and reach in with um, some of those things that we were talking about with related arts, like just in the way that they are with children, um, even if it's not, you know, go take a class on this, um, that they still are bringing in kind of a connection to community and a connection to nature and a connection to being an embodied full human rather than asking kids to strip their humanity because often teachers are asked to strip their humanities at the door. That sounds like some really important projects and some exciting work. I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. So we're at the end of our time today, but thank you so much for talking um, about your book. The book is How Policy Shapes Literacy Instruction, a really important work about what's going on currently in literacy policy and the effect that it's having in schools. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. It's been a pleasure.